So over the next six weeks, I want to create conversations with you and talk about the topic of why does God allow suffering? Now, in my journey of 54 years on the planet, I've heard a lot of people kind of pose that question. Why does God allow suffering? Even our bumper video kind of gave us hints of 9-11, the great tsunami, different things that have happened uh, in our world, young kids dying of cancer. Why all the suffering? Uh, I've had people ask me the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And then I've had people ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Is there any redemptive value in suffering? Why does God allow all the evil that takes place in this world? I mean, those kind of questions are posed all the time. And if we get gut level honest, we struggle with those. And we want to know why. And, and, and we're trying to figure out this problem of pain. And, you know, we live in a society that tries to sedate everything and medicate everything to eliminate pain, to eliminate suffering. And so over the next six weeks, I would invite you to be a part of what God's going to be doing here. I really believe that it would answer some questions for you and provide some healing in your soul as we start to tackle this text. Here's the reality. Each and every one of us know this to be true, but the universal language is suffering. We talk about that. You can get in a room of people and you can have uh, eight or ten people and say, hey, why don't you share some joyful thing that's happened in the last day and maybe three or four people would participate. But if you said, hey, man, share something tragic or painful or some kind of heartache that you've been through, every one of us can ante up because we live in this fallen world where we struggle with pain, suffering, and deep turmoil in our souls. So suffering is a universal uh, reality. It's the universal language. And as we think about that, uh, how do we deal with it? Uh, there, there's no better way than to start with the backdrop of Jesus and his suffering. So I want to answer three questions for you tonight. And I want you to think about these. It's in your bulletin. I would invite you to take notes. But here's where I want to go tonight. As we look at the suffering of Jesus Christ, I want to look at how he suffered. And then I want to look at why he suffered. And then I want to answer the question of what his suffering accomplished for us. What did his suffering ultimately accomplish? And so we get together and we contemplate the Easter narrative and we realize that it all hinges on a bloody story, on a messy story, on a murderous story. And uh, that, that's, that's reality. But let me paint it up for you. And I want you to think about this. Jesus says uh, he's been on the planet for 33 years. He's invested into a group of guys. And this group of guys that he's invested in, we call them the disciples. And so he had spent three plus years investing in these guys' life, doing life with them day in and day out. Now Jesus washes their feet, and then Jesus uh, has this final Passover supper meal with them, if you will. And while he has this meal, and as he's hanging out, he looks at them and he makes this statement. It's found in John 14. He says, uh, hey guys, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Back in my father's house, there's many rooms and mansions and dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, but guys, I want you to know that I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you shall be also. So Jesus makes the statement with this inner circle of 12 guys and says, I'm about to check out. Now, shortly after that, uh, things kind of get a little twisted and trippy. But here's what happens. Jesus then leaves this uh, gathering with his guys, and he goes to a place called Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane, if you study scripture, means olive press or wine press. And it's where they would oftentimes take these olives and squeeze them to get the oil of the olive out. Jesus goes to this garden of Gethsemane, and there is where he bows before the Father and he cries out. I want to read the text with you. He came to a place, Gethsemane, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. Now, get this picture. Jesus is there. He realizes that the next 24 hours is about to be gruesome. He is there praying, and the Bible says he was praying fervently with great agony. What was he praying? He was praying that the cup of suffering, the cup of rejection, the cup of betrayal, the cup of this murder that he was about to go through, Father, if there be any other way that you can accomplish salvation for man, let it happen, but not my will, your will be done. Now, you want to talk about a suffering-style prayer and a heartache and, and just the turmoil of the soul, knowing what laid before him, Imagine the mental, emotional, spiritual, and psychological suffering that Jesus was going through. Now, stay there. One of those disciples that Jesus had poured his life into was a guy by the name of Judas. Judas was going to sell Jesus out. And that night, for a bag full of silver, he betrays Jesus and hands Jesus over to these people that will ultimately murder him. Gethsemane, he's suffering emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and then he's taken by these guys. They lead Jesus from Gethsemane to a place called Gabbatha. John chapter 19, verses 1 and verse 3 kind of capture Gabbatha. It said that Pilate had taken him and scourged him to a place called the Stony Pavement, which in Hebrew is the word Gabbatha. Now, stop. I want you to get this. How did Jesus suffer. He suffered emotionally in Gethsemane. But while he's in Gabbatha, uh, he had him scourged. Now, it's really easy for you and I to read through the text of the scripture and just kind of jog on down to verses 2, 3, 4, and verse 20, and chapter 20, or whatever, and just kind of scoot on through this. But scourging in that day was a preliminary necessity for a Roman execution. That's what Jesus was going to go through. Scourging in that day is where they would take the person that was condemned and they would tie him to a whipping post. Now, I've studied this in detail, and it's very painful and gruesome to study. But they would tie the criminal to a whipping post. So imagine an old-style telephone pole, and they've tied him there. They've tied his arms and his hands together, and he can't go anywhere. Now, while he's there, there's a Roman soldier on one side, about five feet away, and there's a Roman soldier on the other side of this whipping post, about five feet away. And in their hand, they have these whips, and in those whips, they have braided together glass and metal and steel and all different kinds of really nasty stuff that is brutal for the human body to endure. One soldier would take his whip and he would pop the whip and the whip would wrap around the body and then they would yank back. When you study scourging, like I said, if you read that Jesus was scourged, he was flogged, 
passed by it pretty quickly. But the physical suffering that he went through was brutal. 39 lashes. Imagine 39 times. Imagine one time. But Jesus is there. And blood starts to leak and his body and flesh is shredded like, like just ribboned flesh he would look like. And his body is leaking blood and he falls into a pre-shock state. You, you can't think about suffering until you really look at how Jesus ultimately suffered. And so Jesus is shredded and Jesus is brutalized. Now this is the entire uh, narrative of Easter if you study it. If you study it, if you really do study it. So after Jesus is scourged, flogged, he leaves Gabbatha, stony pavement, and they take him to a place called the garrison room. Matthew captures this. While he's there at the garrison room, these Roman soldiers are mocking him and jeering him and cursing him and ridiculing him and spitting upon him. And it's there that they take this crown that they've woven together of two to four inch thorns and they put it on Jesus' head and they thrust it down through the brow of Jesus' skull and a couple of the soldiers take these wooden staffs and they begin to beat the crown of thorns into Christ's head. Now, the blood and the temple pressure and the, the headaches and the body has already been shredded. So, so when you think about suffering, the backdrop of suffering, we've got to understand why would God allow his little boy to go through all of this? And so Jesus is bloodied and he's weak and he's exhausted and he can hardly function. And that's where the Roman soldiers then lead him to a place called Golgotha. We call Golgotha the place of the skull, a.k.a. Mount Calvary. So he's been in Gethsemane and he's sweat drops of blood mentally, emotionally. He's fatigued and physically now his body is shredded and he's led to a place called Golgotha. And it's there at Golgotha where they would make you take your own cross to the place of crucifixion. The cross weighed about 300 pounds. The cross beam itself weighed about 75 pounds, and they would force the guy, you're going to drag your own cross beam to the place of your own annihilation and crucifixion. And so when he gets there, they take his body and they nail him to the cross. When you study it, they would take the spikes. They were five to seven inch spikes, and they would drive these spikes through, not the hands, but through the wrist and these nerve endings here in the wrist, it would shoot this fiery pain throughout the entire human body when you study it. The Bible says that there was no word in that day to capture the essence of the pain that Christ was going through. So they came up with a word in the Latin, a word called excrucius, which means out of the cross. And that's where we get the word excruciating from. And so Christ is the only one ever qualified really to say that he experienced excruciating pain. And so he hangs there, shredded and beaten and unrecognizable. Isaiah 53 paints up the suffering servant. And he hangs there and he cries out, it is finished. Everything that the Father has required for lost man to get reconciled and brought back to God, it is finished. I have totally accomplished what God has required for lost people to be made right with God. 
So when you start to think through it, you would think that how he suffered was brutal. Physically, it was terrible. Emotionally, the Bible says that even the disciples deserted him and fled. So even emotionally and relationally, it was terrible. And then you read where the scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was spiritual. The father had to turn his back on his son and the father and the son had always lived in perfect oneness together. So when you think about how he died, it's worth paying attention to not just every April, but every day to remember how my Savior suffered. Suffering. Then you've got to ask the question, well, if that's how he suffered, and, 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 and God would do that to him, why would he suffer that way? You've got to ask that question. Why, why, why would he do that? Why would he die a criminal's death and why would he be brutalized the way he was? Well, you've got to go back and start to ponder the early pages of Genesis and you realize that God had a blueprint and a design for humanity. For you and I, God had a blueprint and a design when he made it all. The Bible says in Genesis that after God had created everything, he said, that is so good. He makes man in his own image and he says, that is uh, so good. And so God's creation was designed to flourish with man overseeing all of it. And he says, even in Genesis, I want you to reign and rule. I want you to oversee and steward and manage what belongs to me. So everything God made was good. It was good. And God designed man to live basically in four intentional relationships. You and I, if you go back and study it, God goes, I want you to be intentional in four basic relationships. I want you to be intentional with God, and I want you to be intentional with yourself and whole, and I want you to be intentional with others, and I want you to be intentional with my creation that I've placed you to oversee. Jewish writers refer to this harmony of relationships as shalom. I was reading this, and I thought, you know, that's, a, that's such a cool word. I've heard that word over the years, shalom. But shalom meant this perfect harmony, oneness, perfection, wholeness, unity that man would have with God and be at peace with himself, with others, and creation. Genesis 2.16 is such a key passage as you think through this. Genesis 2.16 says that when God had placed man in the garden, he says, I want to give you freedom. I'm going to give all of you freedom. And I'm going to give you freedom to live and do life. But he says, uh, here's the deal. You're free to eat off of any tree in the garden, but if you eat off the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But I'm going to give you freedom. But freedom is not the privilege to do as you want to do. Freedom is the responsibility to do as you should do to honor your God who made you. That's true freedom. It's not an expression of just doing life ever how you want. Genesis 3 enters the equation and what you find there is you find man and woman, you find Adam and Eve abuse and misuse their freedom. They willfully uh, disregard God. They do their own thing and they don't acknowledge God and don't worship God. And 
submit to God's blueprint, they do their own thing. So how he died was brutal, but then you've got to start to look at this question. Why would he suffer the way he did? Why did he do that? Well, what you start to realize is that because Adam and Eve sinned, human rebellion, uh, it disrupted God's perfect design. When you start to study it, what Adam and Eve did hijacked Shalom. Totally hijacked it. You and I are born out of the same seed of Adam and Eve now. We come into the world and the Bible says we're all infected and we're all sinners and there's none that's righteous. No, not one. All of us are in the same boat because what happened with our founding father and mother hijacked everything. So God's perfect design is all shipwrecked. And you start to look at it going, yeah, that's pretty much where I came into the scene. And, and because they hijacked it, God said that the soul that sins will surely die. And, and, and up until this point, I can promise you, there had never been any pain, and there had never been any sorrow, and there had never been any suffering, and there had never been any sickness on the planet. Why, why would he die? Well, God said from the get-go, the soul that sins will surely die. And God says there's going to be a payment for sin. Even if you go back in Genesis after Adam and Eve blew it and they knew they had blown it and they knew they were naked and felt all the shame and guilt, they grabbed these fig leaves and tie them together to try to hide themselves and cover themselves of their shame and guilt and nakedness. And God takes an animal and kills the animal in the garden and sheds blood and the the garden. And God says, uh, 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 because of sin, the payment that I'm going to require and the price that will have to be paid to atone for sin will be blood. So we sing songs in the Christian faith that there's power in the blood, but there's only power in the blood of, of Jesus. So Jesus is suffering on the cross when you start to really contemplate it. It shows the devastating nature of sin, but it also shows that even though man jacked it up, that God was not done with man, and his love and his grace and his grace and mercy was still being extended. God was declaring to the world all the way back through the pages of Scripture, I'm not done with y'all. I still love you, and I'm going to chase you, and I'm going to pursue you. So at the cross, and the reason we named the church the cross, because the word of the cross to those perishing is foolish, but to those being saved, it's God's power unto salvation. And Paul would say, God forbid that I should ever boast about anything other than the cross. At the cross, Jesus embraced the worst of your sin and rebellion once and for all. And he embraced the worst of my sin and rebellion once and for all, and in doing so, became the Redeemer, the only one qualified to buy us out of our lost state and bring us to God. John the Baptist saw him and said, Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Didn't say he would cover it like the annual sacrifice of Yom Kippur. Didn't say he'd cover it for a year. He said, there's the one right there. He's going to take away the sin of the world. First Peter 
119 says, We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or a lamb without any defect. So remember, we go back to Gethsemane and the cup of suffering was placed before him and he didn't reject it. He drank it all because he knew that the only hope for you and I and the only way we could experience salvation was through drinking the cup through suffering. And you and I don't grow unless we go through adversity and pain and suffering. And, and oftentimes we try to eliminate suffering, but God wants to use our suffering in a redemptive way. The whole proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You and I benefit from suffering, the suffering of Jesus. I am benefiting tonight as a result of the suffering of Christ. So you would say, how did he suffer? Well, he suffered in a brutal way. Then you pose the question, why would he suffer such harshness? Because he cared about redeeming lost man back to God. Then you've got to ask the question, what does the suffering of Jesus ultimately accomplish? Let me give you a few. One, it reconciles us back to God. Romans 5.10 says, while we were still enemies... God reconciled us through the death of Jesus. God reconciled us. God brought us back. He made it possible for us to be brought back to him through Jesus. You see, the holiness of God cannot look down on you and I as sinners. Uh, God would have to pour out his wrath on us. But when Jesus died, he opened the door by saying, I can look at you now again favorably because of the blood of my son. When you study this, this is crazy. When Jesus is dying on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And the scripture says that the veil of the temple was torn. When you study Jewish culture, when a father lost his son, he would rip his robe open. And express his heart to everyone. My son, I've lost my son. But when God nails his son to the cross, the veil is ripped and God is showing the world his heart. I love my son and I haven't lost him. And I'm not willing to lose you. He's dying for you. He's going to reconcile you. He's paying the ultimate price for you. You, you see, we can't minimize and trivialize the gospel. We can't reduce this down Easter celebration to eggs and bunnies. We, we've got to keep our eyes open and ponder the narrative of the power of Jesus' suffering. I, I, I'm reconciling you. I'm making a way for you to get back to me. Yes. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to Abba, Father, except through me. I'm, I'm making a way for you to be reconciled. God's given us the ministry of reconciling others to him. Live with urgency. Go declare me to your world. Another thing that Jesus' suffering accomplished is this. 
He shows God's radical love for sinners. I love this. The horrific crucifixion of Jesus Christ and all that he endured becomes clear that God's sacrifice of love was indescribable. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners and helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. May I never get over this message. May I never get cute at Easter and want to preach anything else other than the power of the gospel of Jesus. What does it accomplish? He reconciles me and you. We don't have to live lost. We don't have to live in our sin any longer, in our guilt and shame any longer. He goes, I love you. I love you. I'm for you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? I love you. I wrote this in my notes that Jesus paid the highest price possible to give me the greatest gift possible. He paid the highest price possible. The suffering Messiah, what he did, opened the door for me to know the Father. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the door on which the the whole gospel of Christianity swings. If there be no resurrection, we have no hope. But because of what he did, I love you and I have conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm alive. Yes, you're alive. So when you start to think about it, what does it do? It, he offers reconciliation. He declares the love of the Father. Here's a third thing. He takes away our guilt and our shame. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? It's through faith and repentance. It's through really turning from your sin. It's placing all your faith and dependence on Him. It's saying, I, I got to have you. And in October of 1985, that's what happened to me. I'm like, I got to have you, 22-year-old pagan, lost. I fell on my face, and I'm like, I, I invite you to take over me. I, I, I've got to have you. I, I can't do it anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to live lost and stranded in guilt and shame. I didn't want to continue to turn to the less wild lovers of sex, alcohol, and drugs to sedate, validate, medicate. I didn't want to do it anymore. I knew I was lost, and I needed a Savior. And he goes, come to me. So Christ became our punishment. We don't have to pay it. We'll have anything we have to pay now. He became our punishment. But he also becomes my worth now, something I could never earn. He became a punishment. He gives me him. I've got life in Christ. What a powerful Savior. Here's the last thing, go. He offers us eternal life to anyone who's willing to believe on him. When you study the scripture, he goes, I'm offering eternal life to anyone who believes. Believe doesn't mean to acknowledge. Believe means, in the Greek, persuaded to action. To say that I am a believer means that I am persuaded to act in accordance with the life of Jesus. How Jesus lives is the way I live because I've been persuaded to act. I believe. Believe is not just saying a prayer and jumping in a tank of water in the cultural South. 
Belief means to unplug, to repent, to plug totally into Jesus. That's what it means. And so when we start to contemplate it, we realize that rejecting Jesus will result in eternal misery in a place called hell. I study it. I know that to be true. We were talking with a family friend this week, and one of their friends was killed in a car wreck. And this family friend was hurting, wailing, crying. And by the time I talked with this person on Tuesday night, they were wailing and hurting. But the person said, I don't know where my friend is going to spend eternity. Was there enough evidence in your life that declared that Jesus Christ is the God of all hope? Were you living with urgency? Did you ever share with your friend about the good news of the gospel? No. But I don't know where she's at. I love you enough to share with you the good news of the gospel. I don't want to see any person die and spend eternity alienated and separated from God. I don't want to see anybody. Who's your worst enemy? I don't want to see anybody experience God's wrath. John 3 says, whoever does not believe persuaded action is condemned already and the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever does not believe God's wrath, believe, persuaded to action, total trusting, unplugging from the world and plugging into him. Now here's what I know, those who trust Jesus, the, the best is yet to come because the rest of my life is going to be the best of my life because I know him. Paul would write, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind can conceive what God has in store for those who love him. The best is yet to come. Jesus in John 17, right before he walks that Via Dolorosa, right before he walks the path to the cross, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and true God, and believe in Jesus whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they would know you. No gnosko, heart, surrender is the word. I want them to know you. So it's interesting. For all of these reasons and even more, Christ suffered and died. How he suffered was brutal. Why he suffered was beautiful. What is accomplished in his suffering is phenomenal. The Good Friday, the reason it's good is because the motive behind the one doing the dying, his motive was so good. Father, I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. And so I would challenge you just here tonight. Would you embrace him totally as your Savior and your Lord? He wants to free you of all sin and all shame and all guilt. He's worth embracing. He is worth following. Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at the Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, thecrossloganville.org. Tons of information uh, will answer many of your questions. 
Maybe you've been pondering what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ or maybe just uh, some other issues you're going through and you're like, uh, I I need to talk to someone. We would love to help you. Contact us via email, info at thecrossloganville.org or you can call us at 770-554-3322. God bless you. Make it a great day.